Welcome back to Detroit Rising, a podcast produced by Crane's Detroit Business about the revitalization of the city. I'm your host, Chad Livingood, Senior Editor at Crane's Detroit Business. I'm recording this week from the 6th Annual Detroit Homecoming Conference at the Max Fisher Music Center in Midtown Detroit. Crane started this event in 2014 in the midst of Detroit's historic bankruptcy as a way to get former Metro Detroiters back to the city to try to get them to re-engage with the place where they grew up and got an education. On stage at the conference this morning, I interviewed two Detroit natives who have their finger on the pulse of public policy in cities. Ken Buckfire of the investment banking firm Miller Buckfire was one of the principal consultants in Detroit's bankruptcy. And Chicago attorney Ty Fainer, he's a longtime confidant of Illinois politicians, and he grew up on Detroit's northeast side. We talked pensions, economic development, and land use. The interview lasts 22 minutes. I uh, want to bring on uh, our guests for this, uh, for this panel, uh, Ken Buckfire. He's the head of Miller Buckfire and Company. He was the architect of Detroit's successful restructuring, which led to the settling of the Grand Bargain and the creation of the Great Lakes Water Authority, uh, which had been a state policy objective for nearly 30, uh, 30 years in the state. Another other guest is Ty Fainer. He is also a native of Detroit uh, and who has a long legal and civic uh, background and career in Chicago. Uh, where he has been described by Crane's Chicago Business as a trusted <coughs> advisor to new Chicago Mayor, uh, Mayor uh, Lori Lightfoot. And in a rarity in Chicago, he's a Republican. Um, and he uh, served as, a, as, as Illinois' Attorney General uh, in a time period uh, around when I was born. So, um, so uh, that dates uh, both of us. Um, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us here on stage at, at Detroit Homecoming. Thank you for having us. Uh, we want to start out, um, uh, Ken, can you give us a little bit of background about, about your work and your ties uh, and being, being from Detroit, and, and then Ty. Well, to be very brief, I was born and raised in Detroit, went to the University of Michigan, ended up in New York where I co-founded Miller Buckfire and Company, which is one of the country's leading restructuring-focused <coughs> investment banks. And because of that, we were always keenly interested in the problems facing Detroit. And in 2011, we wrote a letter to the treasurer at the time, Andy Dillon, and said, we can really help you fix Detroit. And he was kind enough to meet with us. And after we convinced the governor and Mayor Bing that our plan was sound, he took us on in 2011 to begin to plan the restructuring, which took two years to plan. Ty, what's your uh, background? Or when, um... I, I grew up on uh, Gresham, Eight Mile Road, went to Denby High School, uh, attended the uh, University of Michigan. I met my wife at Michigan. And since then, all three of my children have gone to Michigan. Uh, I uh, went to Wayne State Law School uh, and uh, uh, taught there for a year, uh, legal writing and research. I didn't know very much, but it was a job. And at that time, I uh, met Governor Thompson and applied for a fellowship at Northwestern University, got my LLM in criminal justice there. Uh, and Thompson became my law professor, our governor, and so forth, and a friend. But I've made my life in Chicago. I love this city. I still have family here, and it's just—it's a wonderful, great place to be again. So, thanks for being part of this today. I appreciate it, Chad. 
Yeah, Ken, you were uh, on the ground floor with, uh, with the bankruptcy and the restructuring uh, part of the, the initial team that uh, Governor Rick Snyder brought in. Um, and you described Detroit's bankruptcy as an asset-less bankruptcy. What kind of surprised you as you dug into the city's finances and enterprise uh, as you were trying to try to map out a strategy here? It, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that shocked me, even though I do this kind of work for a living, is the city had, even then, a billion dollars a year of revenue. But they were spending over 45% on things other than city services. That's an extraordinary amount of money to spend. It has nothing to do with living the city and quality of life. That even surprised me. And the second thing that I found very surprising was nobody knew it. There was no transparency, no clarity of information. The citizens of Detroit really had no idea what was not being done on their behalf. Ty, uh, you're from Chicago. You, your city has its fair share of of uh, pension uh, and debt issues right now, they're, uh, I'm told, are kind of reaching that same threshold of, um, of four out of ten pennies uh, going to, to going to to debt. Uh, what is it? What's the strategy in Chicago right now uh, with the new mayor? Well, the, the the strategy for one thing is transparency, which we haven't had for a long time. The uh, mayor, Mayor Lightfoot's my law partner for about 30 years. Uh, she's only been the mayor since April 2nd. Uh, but she went in thinking they, we had a uh, unfunded uh, debt of one amount, and it turns out it, it was of uh, $600 million. It's, it's over, it's close to a billion dollars, a few dollars short. Uh, uh, she is a uh, uh, fiscally conservative person, and she said in her opening address, we're going to have to cut jobs. We'll be unpleasant. We will try not to cut essential services, certainly not public safety. But we have to get our uh, financial affairs under control. They haven't been. Uh, for a long, long time, and uh, the previous mayor or mayors uh, haven't been honest about the level or extent of debt. So uh, I think the first thing is to recognize the problem. Secondly, she has great public support right now, uh, and uh, I think uh, addressing it and sharing it with the public, saying this is what we have to do, will cause it to, to actually occur. And I think it's important to note that these problems are not unique to Detroit or even Chicago. And many of these problems are actually beyond the ability of any city to deal with because they're functions of long-term fundamental national trends. Most important of which is, ironically enough, people are living a lot longer than was ever expected when a lot of these contracts with employees were negotiated. You think about the implications of living 30 years beyond where these plans thought people would live, you can see why liabilities will explode. And secondly, and even more insidious, national policy for 10 years has been to crush interest rates. Those of you who borrow money are very grateful because it's really cheap to finance a house, but think about what that does to savers like pension funds, like in the city of Chicago. All of a sudden, when they thought they were going to have 50 billion of assets to finance their liabilities, they find out because interest rates are only 2%, they only have 16 billion. Meanwhile, their liabilities have exploded because by the same token, they're larger. And this is a problem that has nothing to do with city government or city management. It has everything to do with national policy and demographic trend. Nonetheless, governments <clears throat> have to address these problems. The, uh, the, Go ahead, the, If I may, the, uh, uh, the history in Chicago, when we started to look at our, and I'm talking statewide now, and Chicago is the largest portion of it, obviously. In 2005, uh, if you count the teachers and AFSCME unions, uh, the public employees unions in Chicago and, and uh, Illinois, we were uh, $35 billion uh, upside down. Uh, there was a recognition of it, 
but the answer turned out to be the politicians to continue to pay the debt service on it. And we're now $132 billion upside down. And Mayor Lightfoot is saying, you know, uh, uh, with, with all love and respect, are we the next Detroit? Are we going to have to go through bankruptcy? What do we have to do to forestall that? So once again, it's a recognition of what the size of the problem is before you can even start to approach and attack it. And it's important to recognize that the, the reason these large numbers matter, it's not because they're big numbers. It's because they have to be funded annually out of the city's operating budget. So when you look at the city of Chicago, which is now 40% on legacy liabilities, 40%. That means for every dollar of taxes, 40 cents is going to pay pension, health care, and debt problems. And that's the real problem with these large liability problems. It's the annual funding cost that destroys city services, not the aggregate numbers themselves. The, the, if I may, just a quick footnote, the other thing that aggravates the paying down is uh, in, in Chicago, uh, uh, a number of people have worked on their 25 years, uh, started young, retired at 55, moved to Indiana or to Florida for lower taxes. They're not even creating jobs. They're not paying money back in right now. So <coughs> the, the, the pot is diminished in terms of how we pay our, our, our bills. So Are we off script now? Yeah, uh, maybe, I don't know. If we could throw the first uh, slide up, I'll try to get us back on script. Um, I want to show just a little bit of uh, data point here on the finances of Detroit. Um, if, we, if we got it yet. Um, no, well, let me, let me move on to another question real quickly. Uh, in Detroit's bankruptcy, the general retirees, uh, their average pensions were somewhere around $20,000. Mm -hmm. And the, the police and firefighters, I believe, were around somewhere around 35000 or so. Um, that w they weren't really uh, you know, living high on the hog. No. Uh, what, what was wrong with the imbalance, though, in Detroit? Well, the, the problem in Detroit at the time was because the city's population had gone from $2 million to 750000 This had fewer tax dollars to invest in these funds. And so when these promises were made to city employees that they'd be paid, as you point out, modest pensions, it wasn't done in the context of a well-run city that was attracting and retaining jobs. So it was not really a problem in any way created by either the employees or the unions. It was a systemic municipal problem that led to underfunding because when the city started running into problems, they were unable to make the minimum contributions to the pension plans that would have allowed the plans to pay what they had promised. Now, you can argue, as we did argue, that many of the contracts that were entered into were overly generous, and there were a lot of abuses of the pension funds by the pension fund managers at the time. It's important to recognize that one of the biggest problems in Detroit at that time was, frankly, incredibly negligent management by the people responsible for the funds themselves, who made many, many terribly imprudent investments, which obviously cost the pension fund uh, beneficiaries millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, as I put on the, on the slide there, you, you had a default on that pension payment. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a pension debt um, scheme, uh, that, that's the best word I could come up with, uh, that was really meant to try to pump money right. into the system. And, and the bankruptcy judge ultimately ruled it was illegal. Yeah. Kent, or obviously Ty, um, uh, your previous mayor t floated an idea about issuing some $10 billion of bonds. <coughs> And pumping the money into the into the city's pension funds to try to bring up the liquidity of them is that something that Mayor uh, Lightfoot might consider? I, I'm not sure about that. She's she's only been the mayor since April 2nd. She's got really great advisors. They're young people who are stepping back and looking at dealing with the reality. I would be surprised if she did. She and the former mayor see eye to eye on virtually nothing. 
Uh, they're very different people in political approach and, and uh, uh, economic discipline. And so I doubt it, but I don't know what she's going to do. One thing I want to throw out is she, she brought in as one of her planners uh, Maurice Cox, who I understand has uh, done some good things, or at least that's our belief here in Detroit. So she's, she's drawing the best talent she can from around the country, not just looking at the same um, same people who have held jobs for years and just wanted a job but couldn't really do it. I would just note that the idea of raising money for a pension fund is financially unsound. As a banker, I think people should recognize it's a terrible, terrible idea. Cities should never, ever do it. And the only reason people ever do it is because it allows them to pretend they've actually done something, but all they've done is make the problem far worse. So if we go to the second slide. I mean, after Detroit shed $7 billion of debt, well, a lot of that was in the retiree health care. Mm -hmm. um, the second slide, um, if we can get it up here for a second. Uh, yeah, so now we are at, uh, we have a, a billion-dollar general fund, mm -hmm. $225 million fund balance. Mm -hmm. uh, the Doug administration is spending fund balance right now on demolition, capital projects. Uh, there, Obviously, last night, the, the mayor talked about his $250 million bonding plan uh, to try to uh, um, get rid of blight in Detroit within five years by the... Uh, I believe, I believe you said by the 11th homecoming, uh, we'll be doing that. Uh, and, then, uh, and then they also are socking away surplus money right now because there is uh, what I've called the pension cliff coming mm -hmm. uh, when under the bankruptcy uh, plan, Detroit will have to resume paying full payments uh, in 2024. Um, and that, that, that the $143 million is what it's estimated to cost right now that they'll have to start absorbing. Um, and if we could also go to the next slide, uh, this is the next one we want to talk about. Um, this is a breakdown of uh, property value in Detroit and, and some other cities in Michigan and comparable cities around the country. We threw Chicago in there um, to give, give a kind of an, a sense of, of how much uh, you know, property value we're having because this is a kind of a big subject. Ken, what is your kind of read of this, of this data here? Well, let's remember why do cities exist? They really exist because they create economic opportunity for their residents. And you can measure that by either rising disposable income or rising property value. So what this slide should tell people is Detroit now after five years has done a great job of restoring public services. I mean, people have new police cars, the buses run, the lights work. I mean, the basic requirements of living in a city have now been restored. But there's a lot of work to be done because the value of the city, frankly, in five years time, if it hasn't doubled from 65 to 130, the city would have failed. So now the challenge for the city is to develop long-term economic development policies, which also involve land use policies, that really put the city on track <coughs> to generate significant jobs, significant income, and property values for the residents. Otherwise, it's failed as a city. We had to reassess property values. This, that number used to be double 20 years ago. Um, but because of the, you know, the, the abandonment, we had to lower yeah. the, the value of things. Um, do we need to be putting more stock into property taxes versus uh, income tax, which is now like 40% of our well, city budget? You know, that's an interesting question. And from a public finance point of view, even though I'm not a public finance banker, income taxes sound great. The problem is they put the burden on a different class of people where the benefits are really going to everybody. And also, it's much more volatile. And that's a real problem when you try to run a city where you need to deliver without, with consistency, long-term public services. That takes long-term sustainable revenues. You can't get that from income taxes. 
So you got to be very careful in terms of designing a tax structure to make sure that you don't get into trouble. Frankly, income taxes <coughs> from a pure theoretical perspective are best used to fund surplus reserve funds and capital programs because those are more easily managed if income tax receipts go down in a recession. They don't impinge on essential public services. And if you think about how you prioritize revenue, property tax revenue should go to maintaining basic city services, lights, police, fire, EMS, but you want to have income taxes to fund CapEx and long-term development. It can't just go into the general fund to be used as a substitute for property tax. Right. And, and, and Chicago, in terms of uh, you know, worrying about what occurred in Detroit and whether it can occur in Chicago, is we now have the highest all-in tax base in the city of Chicago proper of any major city in the country, more than, actually more than New York or L.A., when you add up the excise and the income taxes and the property tax values. And, of course, uh, that changes uh, uh, dramatically with trying to deal with now all the issues that we're having uh, that have caught a lot of notoriety with respect to uh, our aging neighborhoods, the south and west side, the, the uh, uh, policing necessary uh, to accommodate that, and actually the education necessary to educate the kids and people in that area. So we're, we're I guess the only thing I'm really trying to say is we're behind Detroit and we're trying to uh, put a stop to some of the problems we have uh, before we reach the same same place to have to dig out of. But. But the property taxes, she, the mayor's already said that it's unpleasant as it is. Uh, she is going to have to raise the property taxes once again, which will be one more <coughs> uh, ring there. But uh, uh, I think if the public accepts it, uh, and she's, she's forthright, I mean, she has tremendous public support right now. And I think any decent politician, if they can do that, then you can move people and get them thinking right. And... Uh, uh, and do the necessary to preserve what Chicago has. Anyway, that's... To, to put some numbers on this, because I didn't go to law school like Ty, so forgive me, I, I didn't do that. It's a handicap, you know. It's a handicap. I've tried to get over it all these years. But from a quantitative point of view, when a city starts spending more than 20% of its annual budget on something other than services, you're not giving value to your citizens anymore. Detroit was at 60% at the beginning of the restructuring. Chicago is now at 40%. So put yourself in the shoes of a resident. You're spending a dollar on taxes and you're getting nothing for it. Why would you stay? On the other hand, if you're paying, quote, high taxes, but it's all going into services, you're willing to pay that. And there are many cities in the country with, quote, high tax burdens, which have an incredibly high quality of life, and people are okay paying taxes. It's what you get for it. And I think once you lose sight of that very fundamental reality, then you end up on the road to being a Detroit or perhaps a Chicago. Ty, is there, is there a disconnect in Chicago between the south side and the uh, poorer areas? And I was in the West Loop in, the, in your old, what used to be sort of a meatpacking district. In the spring, Google's got this brand new building. There's all these trendy $400 night hotel rooms. Uh, and there's all kinds of new, new construction uh, going in the air in there. Um, uh, is there just a, con a continuing divide in, in, in Chicago where the, the rich are just accepting the higher taxes? <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a social scientist, but the, the Chicago has always been a, a city with a bunch of neighborhoods and groups and things like that. And, and uh, uh, because in spite of the issues in Chicago, it's a great city and it's a healthy city and a strong city. So a lot of people are moving back in. And uh, I'm a White Sox fan because I was a Tiger fan when I was here. I've watched that neighborhood around where, where Mayor Daly used to live on Emerald Street. Just for the Wolverines fan. 
and I'm, most of all, okay, the that's the most fan. important thing. Let's just but but what, what I'm what I'm driving at is is the values and the areas are coming back strong. There is this pocket, a troubled pocket that that everyone is trying, the business community, the mayor, the political leadership, uh, to uh, get the violence out of the community so kids can go to school and and uh, to put jobs there. That's the biggest thing. If you have jobs located uh, in that area. Uh, I think that that is easy, not easy, but it's possible of, of turning it around. We, we tried very hard to uh, uh, get the fellow that makes Shinola watches to come to Chicago. We gave all sorts of benefits. We were going to put him right there, and it sounded good, but he, he pulled out. I'm not sure why. Um, but, but jobs and education, and, and if you do that, we have a good, strong, healthy city. But right now, it's just a small, relatively small core just west of the city. Of, you know, with the violence and so forth. Final question. Uh, in this chart here, 19.6% mm -hmm. of Detroit's property taxes are abated. Um, a lot of our recent big projects in Corktown, mm -hmm. uh, FCA plant, um, uh, Gilbert's uh, um, new skyscraper, got a lot of tax breaks. Should we stop abating property taxes? Well, I think the more interesting question, so I'm not going to answer that question directly, I'll answer a different question, Okay. is what should the city do from a long-term economic development uh, perspective with the 40 square miles of vacant land that are in the city. I think that is the greatest strategic asset of Detroit. It actually is a way for Detroit to leapfrog over every other city in the country competing for jobs, including Chicago, if it finds a way to intelligently use that land uh, to attract residents and industry. Leaving aside the question of tax abatements, that may or may not be good in a short-term basis, but what the city really needs to focus on is what are you gonna do with that 40 square miles? And one of the problems that the city has, and I think this group has to recognize, you can be very helpful to the city by acknowledging the fact that of that 40 square miles, who wants to take a guess of how many city, county, state, and federal agencies own that 40 square miles? Anybody want to take a guess? How many? Close, 17. Imagine the challenges of having a coherent strategy when you have 17 agencies who all think they're in charge trying to do something that's rational that also has a multi-decade execution period when our elected officials have a four-year period. The problem of managing economic development and land use is multi-decades long. It can't be captured by any single administration. And frankly, it's beyond the ability of any local single city to deal with. This is really, in many ways, a state-level problem. Much as the state stepped in to create the Great Lakes Water Authority, and there's a very successful example of cooperation among differing competing entities, the counties in the city and the state. The same thing should be done in Detroit. If the Detroit can crack this problem, that 40 square miles will be the trigger for massive economic expansion in Detroit, will go on for decades. If they don't solve this problem, despite all the heroic work people have done in downtown and everything else, the city will fail to achieve its potential. Ty, closing thoughts, we've got to go here. Uh, no, I'm in awe of, of uh, anybody that went to Michigan. You can see as a command of the facts and the experience. I didn't go to the law school. <laughs> and I went to Wayne Law School, but go blue is my, my closing thought. Ty Feiner, Sam Buckfire, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Detroit expats Ken Buckfire and Ty Feiner at the 6th Annual Detroit Homecoming. Thank you for listening to Detroit Rising. If you're listening to this podcast on SoundCloud, please consider subscribing to the Cranes Detroit Business podcast channel on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 